Welcome everyone to The Right Side of Maybe, a new series at Global Guessing where we bring on elite forecasters to talk about their background in quantified forecasting and walk us through their previous forecast to discuss their process, what they learned, and the ways in which they leverage their forecasts. In today's first episode, we are joined by Peter Herford, the co-CEO of the Think Tank Rethink Priorities, a triple master of Kegel's machine learning and data science competitions, and a top 100 forecaster on Metaculist and the forecast app by Facebook. We wanted to have Peter on as our first guest to discuss his background and his recently uh, timely forecast on the Suez Canal crisis, which he posted on Twitter. It was a forecast which netted Peter a pretty handsome profit while beating the crowd's forecast. As many of you guys know, the Suez Canal crisis was caused by the Evergreen and was a prime example of the importance of high-quality, accurate forecasts. The Suez Canal provides the shortest route for European countries to access the Middle East and Asia and therefore sees a high volume of trade each day. With the canal blocked off, nearly $10 billion were lost each day in global trade. Knowing when the crisis would end, therefore, has immense implications for global trade and markets, yet making accurate forecasts on events such as these can be very challenging. Uh, Last Sunday, or rather the Sunday before that, while the Metaculous community median for when the canal would be cleared was rising and prices on the forecasting trading platform Polymarket were crashing, Peter made the following forecast on the Evergreen. There was a 10% chance... That by 328 the ship would be cleared out, a 30% chance by 329, a 31% chance by 331, and then a 95% chance uh, by April 14th. In comparison, the Metaculous median prior to the news breaking was over here on April 3rd, and at the same time, the poly market estimate was much lower. Uh, right before the prediction uh, sort of resolved positively and the news of the ship broke out, um, the overall price on Polymarket was $0.27, cents, giving roughly this sort of distribution on the likelihood of clearing. Uh, meanwhile, our forecast was also pretty off Peter's. It sort of matched on the end of the spectrum, but definitely diverged here at the top. So Peter's forecast definitely stands out on being the right side of maybe and beating a ton of forecasters, not only on Metaculus, but on Polymarket. For instance, on Polymarket, at a low price of $0.27, cents, um, the contract prices were at a 60% discount relative to Peter's confidence of the ship clearing, and purchasing contracts at that point would have net someone a 270% profit only a few hours later. Not bad, Peter, for someone who doesn't know much about ships. <laughs> Thank um, you. Thanks. Yeah. So before we get into this forecast specifically, we want to sort of start off getting to know you and your background in the forecasting space. But first, a special thank you to McCall Dubrowski, a forecaster at Metaculus and Good Judgment Open, who came up with this name, as well as a thank you to Philip Tetlock, Barb Mellers, and Dan Gardner's, and Dan Gardner, sorry, the part, uh, the parents of super forecasting for popularizing the phrase "the right side of maybe." Without further ado, welcome, Peter. Thanks. Um, so yeah, we just wanted to start off um, and sort of talk about your background in the forecasting space. Sort of how and when were you? Uh, first introduced to the concept, um, what sold you on it, uh, and what made you interested in getting better at it? Yeah, well, I'd always been kind of interested in forecasting kind of from reading Philip Tetlock's work, and it seemed pretty cool that there was this like group of people that were producing like highly accurate forecasts. Um, But it took me a couple of years to try to decide to 
delve into it myself. Um, I kind of started getting really serious about it in the run up to the 2020 presidential and Senate elections um, because I had kind of gotten involved in polling and I was from polling, I was really interested in figuring out how accurate the polls were and like how we could forecast the results of elections and like kind of looking at the 538 model and seeing kind of like where, how it predicts and like where it could be improved potentially or um, and tweaking about it. And from there, I kind of got really interested in like Metaclis making forecasts there. And then also pretty heavily interested in um, the political betting on um, predict it and uh, poly market. And um, yeah, I was, I've been pretty involved in um, betting and forecasting kind of um, a lot over the, the past four months, kind of just rapidly getting up to speed. So approaching the 2020 election, um, you know, you, you say that that's when you wanted to get, you know, sort of serious about quantified forecasting. Um, were there skills or certain um, things that you thought would be important to learn or develop as, as you're, you know, starting to make those forecasts? Uh, yeah, like what sort of things are you focusing on? Yeah, I think like the main things I was focusing on were kind of like collecting information from a lot of different sources and like aggregating them pretty well and like also, I guess, just kind of back testing forecasts a lot. So like kind of seeing like if you had followed this method previously, like would you have had good results or not? Um, and then that kind of formed the basis of like actually calculating the probabilities. Um, I guess for betting, I was like pretty interested in um, the Kelly criterion for like bet sizing and like figuring out like kind of risk management on your betting pool, especially when you're managing like multiple markets kind of figuring out how to prioritize bet sizes for each one. Um, and then I guess there's also just, if you're doing betting, like interesting betting psychology as well, um, like managing your own like mind state and not like panic selling. And then also kind of trying to predict, meta predict where the market might be going, um, which is like less relevant from a tech list. But like, I guess if you're doing betting, there's like a lot of additional skills layered on top of forecasting. So just so that like one of the first uh, steps you took to improve and learn forecasting skills was sort of developing the sort of diverse media diet. Um, could you sort of explain like what your main sources are and how you went about aggregating that information as well? Yeah, I would say my, um, my main sources are usually like Twitter based. Um, I think I've like spent a lot of time just kind of trying to carefully curate a like list of people to follow. Um, I think you can find a lot of information on markets by searching Twitter as well. Um, I think like following other people on the tech list is also super helpful. Um, and also like, I guess just kind of trying to ask a lot of people what their opinions are of things. Like a lot of it can be pretty specific to the market. So maybe we can like get in eventually when talking about how I did the ever given market, like a lot of it just kind of varies a lot by market. I don't really read that much like day-to-day -day news. Um, I get like, I guess like a daily news email from the dispatch. Um, I like that as a news service but like i'm not like trying to read a ton of news like all the all the time is that so is that for sort of like managing just the noise that's inherent in sort of reading like a full news article and so by getting into twitter you're just sort of getting short snippets of the news yeah i would say i guess it's kind of for two things i think one just like trying not to spend too much time reading the news um like kind of keeping it tight and then two i think I think it actually can be pretty easy to like get over update from seeing news like you see like a particular reporting 
and you like think that it's like basically guaranteed to happen the way it's been reported because it seems like a reputable news source and like i think a lot of times it can like be surprising how often things don't go the way that things have end up being reported um like i think for example if you like followed axios's reports on who biden's cabinet would be i think they got a whopping zero cabinet um, appointees correct um but these kind of things can like make markets spike all over the place. So it seems like you have a pretty um, sort of routine way of collecting information, sort of regardless of what the forecast is that you're working on. Are there some other sort of standard approaches that you use when it comes to forecasting? Like, do you normally, um, you know, work with a group or work alone? Are there certain techniques that you employ across all of your forecasts, or you know, is it more case by case basis? Yeah, I think it can be case by case. And I think there's a lot of the usual stuff like um, like getting good base rates and like carefully thinking about like inside view versus outside view and other things. Um, I do a lot of my forecasts by asking other people I trust like what their opinions are about things or sometimes a lot of people bring me into a forecast where like they think they have a clever take and they run it by me and see like what I think about it and then like I end up getting really interested in it and like buy their hypothesis and like dive in myself and so I definitely do it kind of as like a at least like pretty heavily collaborative um I definitely think the forecasts I make with other people end up being a lot more successful than the forecasts I make on my own um and how much time do you sort of spend forecasting every day and sort of how do you break that up in terms of you know, researching information, coming to your sort of your own beliefs uh, based on information and then sort of talking with others and um, sort of doing that more collaborative aspect of forecasting. Yeah, I think it can vary a lot. Um, like, I think sometimes I can get really sucked into something, especially when it's like a hot time sensitive question, like I could easily spend hours in a particular day looking into something. I think other times I just like to build Mod, like for COVID, I like to just build a model and update it maybe like um, 15 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day once I actually like kind of spent the initial time building it. Um, like I think there have been some weeks where I've literally spent maybe 15 hours on forecasting and other weeks where I like don't even think about it at all. Um, it really kind of just depends on what else I have going on in my life and like how interesting and pressing the particular forecasts are. And how many forecasts would you say you make on average a week? You know, obviously it varies, but. Oh yeah, it varies a lot. Um, I mean, I guess sometimes I just cruise through Metaculous and try to forecast as many questions as I can. Um, so it's going to be like a very large um, distribution based on the week. Like maybe some weeks I make dozens of forecasts and other weeks I only make one or even zero. So then you're spending sort of how much time to make a for? I mean, obviously a forecast that's, you know, new developing, I'm guessing the Suez crisis, which we'll get to shortly was a longer one and other ones are, are shorter, but. Yeah. Um, I think like a like, lot of times, a lot of times on Metaculus, like I can sort of play speed chess and make a forecast in just a couple minutes where I look at the community median, look at the comments on the Metaculus forecast, kind of think through, do I think the community median is off in any particular direction? maybe like Google one or two things and then like kind of maybe like in a total of five to 10 minutes have like a pretty reasonable forecast. Um, and I think like that's kind of the only way you really can predict on a large enough quantity of Metaculous questions to really sort of rack up all those um, Metaculous points. Cause 
um, they definitely reward accuracy, but they also have a lot of reward for participation as well. Like every question is positive, some in expectation. So you do kind of really want to just, you are incentivized to just kind of pump out those forecasts. And the community median is usually very good. Um, it's hard to beat. Um, so like, I think that's like a really great place to start uh, when it's available. And have you calculated sort of like the accuracy difference that you have when you do like speed chess forecasting versus uh, grand champion chest forecasting <laughs> yeah that's a really good question i definitely i've been trying to collect good data on that like i've been tracking all my forecasts and looking back at them and i think that's a really key way to improve um i haven't done that like i haven't looked at that specifically like um returns on effort i definitely think i should um i think a lot of it is going to be based also just on like if i have the community median i'm going to do a lot better than if i don't um and so like that could make a really pretty, it could vary a lot by question, but I definitely should look at that. That's like pretty interesting. So I think now we want to get into the meat of the episode and, you know, we sort of talked about some of the scaffolding around it. Um, you know, your approach to some of the forecasting uh, that you've done in the past, but can you speak a bit about how you approach this question of the ever given ship and the Suez Canal? Um, did you use an outside view perspective uh, or base rate for this, you know, sort of a, a, a black swan event so it might have been hard to do that um just what were some of the biggest factors that you were thinking about yeah so it was very i think this question is definitely not a good question to use outside view on um i definitely tried to google like other ships that got like have any gotten stuck how long did they take to get out um, but i didn't really find any good examples and it looked to be incredibly case by case um, and the last time there was a Suez crisis, it was during a huge war between e Egypt and Israel. So I don't think that really was a good base rate. Um, obviously, I don't think we've ever had a ship just blocking the canal during peacetime before. Um, so yeah, I kind of basically ignored all outside views and just kind of really tried to focus a lot just on the individual facts of the, the case. And I didn't really make a good forecast until after like I had observed uh, a good amount of their attempt to extract the ship. Like, I think I, I made my forecast like on like, I think the second, well into like the third day of the um, rescue attempt. And so like, what were those primary factors that you considered while, you know, determining that inside view? Uh, you said you were watching sort of the process of, of digging it out. Was it how much sand they were removing each day? Like what, so yeah, what were the factors that went into your forecast? Yeah, um, so I think the main thing I did, um, like when I first saw the market on Polymarket, I saw it on Polymarket first, and then I saw it on Metaclist, and then I tried to compare the two, um, and like that was kind of interesting. Um, I think Metaclist started out being a little bit more pessimistic than, no, a little bit more optimistic than Polymarket, um, so that's good for Metaclist. Um, but like I saw the price fluctuating a lot and I like tried to just read a lot of different news articles. Um, I think I may have read like two dozen different articles where they had these like experts like speculating about how the ship got stuck and like how they're going to get it out and like what they need to do. And like one of the main things I saw was it seemed like no one really knew anything. Like some people thought it would be out in only a couple of days. They ended up being right. Some people thought it would take weeks and like they kind of just discussed the factors and the main thing it seemed like was that I was either going to get dug out pretty quick or they're going to need to unload all the cargo and it would take weeks. And I thought it was kind of 
like 50 50 because it didn't really seem like anyone had any good idea about how hard it is to dig out the ship or not and so then when i saw the market was kind of um, confident in one direction it seemed kind of like it could make sense to sort of take a stake in the opposite direction um, but i didn't really make a firm forecast until they were well into the digging process i think the main thing for me was two things one that the tides were going to get better every day they were hoping to use the tides to float out the ship um, there's obviously high tide and low tide every day but there's a lunar tide cycle as well and it was approaching a full moon um, so they were going to have like the highest possible tide um, it ended up being the day after they floated the ship was the peak tide so they got it out even faster than peak tide and then the second thing was digging, it seemed like a lot of people were getting, um, like thinking that the digging wasn't going to work because they hadn't made a ton of progress yet. But when I was like reading about the digging, it just seemed like they're, they weren't even finished. Like there was a lot more digging to be done that hadn't been done yet. And like they had published information on like the rate of the digging and the amount of sand left to dig. And like that kind of led me to believe that the digging attempts haven't even really had a chance to succeed yet. So like all the people that thought digging was done and we just had to unload the ship, like it didn't seem like that was actually borne out by the evidence. Um, and I think the key thing for me was eventually they had dug enough of the ship that they were able to start rotating the ship. And um, when they rotated the ship, I think they announced they had rotated it 30 degrees in both directions. And that seemed to me like an incredibly positive sign and they haven't even finished digging yet. And that's exactly when I launched my optimistic forecast was um, hearing about them rotating 30 degrees. Like I'm not an expert on ships or how to dig out ships, but that seemed like a really strong signal um, that they were going to be able to release the ship. And then um, like one of the Egyptian ministers like announced that he thought they would get the ship out in um, two days or so. And um, he seemed like moderately trustworthy source though of course there were other sources disputing his claims um and yes yeah, so that's kind of was the main thing for me there definitely was a lot of noise like other things i was trying to pay attention to were like how many ships they were rerouting um because it seemed like if you reroute a ship you kind of um think that the canal is not going to get cleared anytime soon but it seemed like every company had their own decisions about like how costly a reroute would be versus how costly staying in the canal would be. And it was like hard to extract information from that. I think another big sign was that like I was looking at oil prices and they didn't seem to be panicking all that much, which might suggest that people in the market kind of expected a tidy resolution. Um, and so like that was also potentially a positive sign as well. Um, but it was really like the ship rotation and the fact that they still were making digging process that made me uh, make my optimistic forecast the way it did um, and then that proved out to be be correct because they released the ship even faster than I, I expected i guess i was waiting for the peak tide but they got it out even faster than peak tide it's really interesting that you mentioned shipping container uh, shipping companies rerouting their ships uh, that's another group where this sort of accurate forecast would have been very valuable for them to have i, I imagine if most of the ships uh, sh shipping companies would have uh, been able to forecast that it would have been cleared by the end of March, uh, a far fewer number would have rerouted their ships. Um, what I sort of want to follow up on is you sort of made your public optimistic forecast on Twitter around noon or so Eastern um, on Sunday. And 
the major news that the ship was likely going to be cleared out within the next day came late that night. Uh, and I was wondering how your internal forecast, if it at all changed between when you posted that uh, forecast and when the news broke. Yeah, I mean, it didn't change too much because I don't think there really was like minute by minute news updates available as far as I could tell. Obviously, when the news broke that the ship like had been floated, like obviously I became very confident they would get it out. Um, I think there was a moment in the poly market though where um, they like spiked to like incredibly confident and I ended up taking a no position um, that the ship would not get floated out just because it seemed like, you know, there's always things that could go wrong and that there's like always tail risks. And then I ended up being able to sell that no position for a good sized profit as well once they did encounter a setback. Um, and then I flipped back to a yes position. So I actually won the market three times. Um, so that um, definitely added up to my profits. So can you speak a bit more about sort of your, your approach to this play on poly market, especially sort of in comparison to um, how you might have approached it on, on other platforms like And can, you, just, and can um, you also just give a quick explanation of what poly market is and how it works? Yeah, so Polymarket is a betting website. Um, you, um, you need cryptocurrency, but not like Bitcoin or Ethereum. You actually use what's called USD coin, which is just pegged one-to-one -one with US dollars. Um, so you're not like risking anything on crypto fluctuations. It's all like tied to American dollars. Um, and it like works on the blockchain. Um, I don't really know what the blockchain is. You can Google it. Um, and you then can just buy these contracts. They're binary options. What that means is that they um, are tied to a particular event, like whether the ship will be rescued by March 30th. If the event happens as planned, all the options, all the yes options turn into $1 and all the no options turn into $0. And if it does not happen, all the no options turn into $1 and all the yes options turn into zero. And so then these options are sold um, at a market price that fluctuates and it would fluctuate based on people's confidence in the event happening. So like if it's worth like 60 cents, that means people think it has like a 60% chance of happening and you can like either go long or short by buying or yes or buying no respectively. And then you can sell at any time as well for the new market price. Um, so it could end up being profitable to take positions you think are not going to happen if your like likelihood is higher than the market or even if you think the market might just misprice them even more in the future or something um this kind of gets into some of the market psychology stuff i was talking about earlier um i think the way i went into it initially was thinking it would be 50 50 um so i bought yes because yes was underpriced then when it did hit 50 50 i sold because i didn't have any idea anymore. Um, and then once the ship got rotated 30 degrees each way, um, I bought yes again. Um, and then I think it went down to 27 cents, like you said. So I bought a lot of yes. Um, and then it went up to 95 cents and I sold all my yes. And I bought no because I thought they were overconfident in the ship being floated. And then no went back up to 20 cents and yes went down to 80 cents because it always has to add up to one. So that was like a four times, four X return on that. And then I flipped back into yes. And then 
bought yes until the ship was floated and then sold, finished floating and moving and then I sold it. Um, I know that's kind of complicated. Hopefully that sort of makes yeah. sense. But so you definitely you you were you both were you, you had you, you had your forecast, but you were doing more than just betting the forecast. You were playing the market with the knowledge you had from your forecast. I'm curious, yeah, did exactly. you did you sort of calculate um a total uh return that you were able to um make on this forecast? Um I think it looks like I, I made about eight hundred and twelve dollars um in net profit and that was I think off of like spending six hundred and fifty dollars wagered. Um so like I guess that's like a little over doubling. Um I tend not to bet that big. I know other people were taking like four or five figure bets on this market. Um, but I, I'm kind of keeping things small, but I do think that was um, definitely some really good returns, especially compared to the size of my portfolio. Do you think Actually, when, sorry, just when the price hit that 27 mark, that, that seemed like that would have been the point to get a lot in. Was that, did you do a lot of the, the purchasing at that point? Oh, uh, I mean, that definitely would have been ideal, but Unfortunately, I, I think I bought about half of it at 40 cents and then the other half at 27 cents because um, like I didn't anticipate that it would continue to drop. And just quickly, I think, um, you know, this is more, you know, for my edification, but also I think people will be interested um, in your experience with, uh, you know, Polymarker, which is used if you've used like predicted or some of these other betting platforms. Um, you know, you just mentioned that some of the sizes of trades that you were seeing or hearing about were four or five figures. Is that something that is uh, common in your experience across questions on these platforms? Um, like what, yeah, just like what magnitude of, of trades are you seeing? Yeah, I think it can be, um, it can really depend a lot on the market. I would say, first of all, um, Predictit has a rule where they limit you to only being able to bet a maximum of 850 on any individual contract though um, sometimes there are multiple contracts per question, which then could allow you to bet more on a particular question. Um, where Polymarket, the only constraint is how much liquidity there is in the particular market. And I think they usually tend to have five or six pretty big markets at any given time where it wouldn't be unusual to see um, trades in the high four figures, low five figures. Um, more money than I'm putting in, but um, other people, I guess, are have a lot more money to play with. Uh, and so clearly, I mean, the, this forecast, as, as, as we showed with the graph, was on the right side of maybe in comparison to the Metaculous community uh, and what the poly market was saying. Uh, so what do you think sort of went right? Like, what do you think you did strongest with this forecast? And then also, you know, what, what do you think was the weakest part of this forecast? Uh, and how would you change that for next time? Yeah, I think the strongest thing that I did was, um, so I worked on this question with a friend um, and that was super useful to kind of talk through things with him. Um, I think we just did a, a really good job of kind of, I think for this question, there was just like an incredible amount of noise. And I think we did a really good job of kind of cutting through that and kind of focusing on the actual like facts on the ground and what was changing and then like kind of figuring out like who we should listen to. And then just like, I think we like just ignored a vast majority of the rel of information that other people are kind of over-focusing on. Um, so I think, yeah, this question is just a huge victory. Like normally you want base rates and you want experts and other things. And this question is kind of a great example of when it actually makes sense to throw out 
a lot of the normal news um, and like really kind of figure out what um, is important. Great. So uh, now we sort of want to move on from the Suez crisis and just sort of get your concluding thoughts just about this forecast in general and what you've learned uh, in your time forecasting. Um, so what have been some of the sort of main lessons that you've learned during your time in forecasting and how have you and how are those sort of used in this forecast? Sorry, can you repeat the question? Yeah, what were some of the main lessons that you've learned about forecasting uh, during your time of forecasting since you picked it up uh, in 2020? And how did you sort of apply those lessons uh, in this forecast? Yeah, I guess the main lessons, I mean, normally would be, I guess like there's lessons around base rates and when base rates don't apply. So having good knowledge that base rates don't apply here was super helpful, I think. Um, being able to like find a wide variety of information um, and not just focus on any particular news source was like super helpful, kind of just aggregating a lot of information, um, focusing on facts. I think breaking things down into key factors. Um, like I saw your blog post where you did this, where you like broke down like tides, sand digging, weather, climate, cargo removal, like just, I guess all these factors and kind of having some sense of how they might mechanistically interact, um, I think is super helpful. Um, so I think it's good that you guys did that. Although we definitely, and as as our graph showed, sort of you know, got it not yeah, nowhere uh, near as correct as yours. I was wondering if, uh, you know, well, in I that guess, article we sort of gave a, a, a few reasons in terms of why we got it wrong. But I was wondering if you had sort of other comments for us on terms of how we could have done our forecast better. I guess um, if you don't mind, if you have a little bit of time, can you just walk me through exactly why you were so pessimistic i think you were you even more pessimistic than attackless uh sort sort I think of slightly maybe a couple of points um here let's uh so this is our forecast over here um and this was the metaculous median so i think our median calculating it is actually around the fourth or the fifth so we definitely were a little yeah. bit more pessimistic than metaculous uh, I think uh, the main factor in our pessimism is that we were taking the news that they were planning to, you know, use helicopters and take off the cargo as yeah. a signal that the the sand digging wasn't working, and therefore it's if we you know it it, it was the the third highest point was uh, at the start, but overall yeah. we thought you know if they're talking about this and plans are being made, then therefore. Uh, that's is likely to happen and therefore that influenced our entire curve yeah that makes sense so then i guess it sounds like you were just a bit over confident there um i think like i think one of the things i i was seeing was just that no one really knew if the sand digging was going to work or not and they were like lining up this plan b of removing the cargo and there were certainly a lot of experts talking about how slow that cargo removal would be um, but at the same, every time people were talking about cargo removing, they were still digging more and more sand and like people were giving up on people in the news were giving up on that as a possibility, but they still haven't even figured finished digging out the ship yet. So like I saw it kind of just hadn't even been tried yet. So I thought it still at least had a moderate amount of success. And then you also could read, um, the. Um, Egyptian minister kind of in charge of the situation, kind of still saying that he was waiting for the digging to be done. Um, so yeah, I guess that probably is where your forecast went wrong. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I don't even know if we even factored any Egyptian officials' comments really into our forecast. Andrew, did I was going to say, I think a big part um, or a big lesson that we can take from this is just the way that we look at information and gather information. I think we're reading a lot of sort of mainstream news articles and we we're trying to understand the situation. Um, and, you know, maybe looking at Twitter, some key figures yeah. who you know, had influence and knowledge of the events would have been more useful. Yeah, I think a very common forecasting mistake and one that I've personally made dozens of times is like reading one news article or even like two that both say the same thing and just kind of taking that as like an absolute fact or like assigning yeah. like, oh, like these two news sources said it. So like it has a 90% chance of happening or 95% chance of happening that way. And I think in reality, like that's just not the case. I think um, the base rate of news sources being right is more like maybe 80% or less. Like that's not, that's a number I just pulled out of the thin air, not a number based on any sort of research. It um, would be cool for someone to look into that. Um, but it's definitely not like 90 or 95%, like I think people tend to assume. And again, I've, I've been victim of that mistake too. Um, I think a lot of people are. Um, I think it's actually kind of funny. You can see many times on prediction markets, a news article comes out and it will like spike the prices for an hour. And then the prices will go back down once people realize that like the news article wasn't infallible. Right. Yeah. And you, you definitely see that in the stock market too, but it tends to be much, much smaller. Do you have the hypothesis on why is it just less volume there? So um, do you have, well, like, have those higher spikes or? Well, I mean, I think the stock market, I guess, are you talking about the duration of time the spike takes or the magnitude of the spike? Uh, um, magnitude. Yeah. I don't know much about stock markets, but it does seems like they have a lot, lot more money by many orders of magnitude um, than prediction markets. And then also there's a lot of like high frequency trading and bot trading um, that might be able to magnify those signals um, a lot more, even if that's not like what a human would endorse on reflection. And then before you go, we do want to get your thoughts. Um, you know, you talked about some of the news uh, sources that you use are there, you know, books, skills, um, Twitter accounts that you think would be helpful for other people who are interested uh, in quantified forecasting and want to be on the right side of maybe like you were? Oh, thanks. I'm not sure I'm always on the right side of maybe, but I appreciate the compliment. Um, I mean, I think the best thing is honestly just to practice a lot, um, like go on Metaculus and like make a lot of forecasts and try to like explain your reasoning to other people um, which so they can point holes in it, um, read other people's reasoning. And I guess also just try to reflect when you get a forecast wrong, like why you might've got it wrong, but don't over update. Keep in mind that like, if you say something has a 30% chance of happening and it happens, like that doesn't mean you were terribly wrong because there could have just been a 30% chance of it happening. Um, but like, if you do like maybe three dozen or more forecasts, you can kind of look as a group like where have you been off? You can like track your calibration, um, see kind of where you're making these mistakes and um, just kind of get slowly better over time. I think that's been far more useful to me than um, reading any particular book or following any particular person. Um, I think probably one of the biggest things I regretted was diving into prediction markets right away because I definitely lost a lot of money early on. Um, so I think I definitely prefer to start small in that area. Um, um, but that's like, I think another place, that, I think you definitely learn a lot faster when you're losing real money because um, you're definitely highly motivated not to do that too often. Right. Yeah. 
And um, do you have so, advice in terms of like when forecasters should feel confident uh, in going on a prediction market and putting up their money? Yeah, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule. I think if you are seeing good results on a tech list, it could be worth spending a bit of money waiting in the poly market or predict it. But I would keep in mind like poly market and predict it only reward you when you're better than the average predictor. And then of course you also have to make enough money to cover fees. Whereas Metaculus, you get rewarded kind of an expectation for any prediction as long as it's not total crap. Um, so like when you go onto the prediction markets, I think even strong Metaculus forecasters will lose money on prediction markets. So I would kind of start small. And then when you see yourself, see things going to plan and you're like racking up wins, you can start um, increasing your bankroll as you feel comfortable. Um, Great. Um, well, Peter, thank you so much for uh, joining us for the first episode of The Right Side of Maybe. Yeah, uh, thanks. I, I learned a lot. Um, I was about to say I learned a ton. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm glad. Uh, where can people find you? Um, anything you want to plug? I know that you have uh, a podcast coming up in the near future about forecasts as well, if you want to talk about that. Yeah, sure. So I'll plug a couple things. Um, first of all, it's just my Twitter, at um, Peter Herford. That's H-U-R-F-O-R-D. Um, I like to tweet a lot of my forecasts. Um, I think this Ever Given forecast I did tweet out. Um, a lot of my forecasts are good. A lot of them are bad. I'll let you kind of sig um, sift through that. Um, but I definitely enjoy putting them out and learning from it. Um, the other thing I'm involved with is what's called the Open Model Project. And that's at openmodelproject.org. What we're kind of trying to do there is like boost the transparency and public collaboration in forecasting, especially around election forecasting, um, where it's not just about kind of creating accurate forecasts, but kind of really digging into them and like understanding how they work and like why they output the numbers they do and like what kind of assumptions they're making. Uh, we kind of launched some like really innovative things. We kind of did the first what I call the world's most transparent poll where we did a poll and like we provided all the information that went into the poll, all the individual results anonymized, of course, and like all the assumptions we were making. And we even let you kind of toggle off assumptions and like see how it changes the results, which I thought was really cool. Um, yeah, and I think like kind of just being more transparent and highlighting that makes sense. Um, and then I guess also worth just mentioning my, my day job at Rethink Priorities, where it just kind of doing um, research on the world's most important problems. Um, we definitely find forecasting to be really um, key to that. Um, and I think we just finished hiring. So unfortunately, if you're listening to this, you just missed a role, but there'll be more roles in the future. And if you're really good at forecasting, I'm sure we'd love to um, hire you to work full time on some of our um, forecasting research projects or any other research that just heavily uses forecasting. We're kind of using forecasting for everything um, nowadays. Awesome. Well, Amazing. Peter, thank you so much.